when I was taking the pain meds, I realized that I was able to talk and I I could do things that I wouldn't do. So I got addicted to pain meds and then illegal drugs, substances, alcohol. But I was a functioning substance abuser. Got through college, I had a job, and at some point I was going down and at some point I just uh, hit my spiritual rock bottom where I couldn't keep doing what I was doing and I could not do it. And I found myself getting high off heroin a couple of times a day just to not be dope sick and, and I was drinking. And so finally I got to a point where I couldn't stop and I couldn't keep going. everybody we are back so today we are with george mumford little intro on george mumford so michael jordan credits george mumford with the transformation of on-court leadership of the chicago bulls and helping them lead to six nba national championships widely thought of as phil jackson's secret weapon mumford has also worked with kobe bryant shaquille o'neal clint dempsey Olympic silver medalist, Sasha Cohen, and many others. And I think most importantly, you know, I read The Mindful Athlete, which she is the author of, which was like a life-changing um, book for myself. And he's here with us today, and we're very grateful to have him on our Comeback Stories podcast. So welcome. Welcome, George. Thank you. So there's one thing, and I keep forgetting, I, I have to correct one thing, though. I started working with the Bulls after their first repeat. So I actually... I've been involved with working with Phil with eight NBA championships, but if I added those three, that would be 11. So the three before, the first three happened before I got there. Actually, it's interesting just to share a little bit about that. At the time I was working at uh, UMass Medical Center in the Department of Preventive Behavioral Medicine and what we call the Stress Reduction and Relaxation Program. Now it's called the Center for Mindfulness, so that's what it was renamed. But at that time, and so Phil used to do this program at Omega Institute, which is in Rhinebeck, New York, called Beyond Basketball. It was a fundraiser for his teammate from the Knicks, Eddie Mass. He died of a heart attack playing basketball. And so it was a fundraiser for his family and that, and that sort of thing. And so he used to do that every summer. And my friends and bosses from uh, John Capizan and Saki Centrelli, they were my bosses at UMass Medical Center, and they used to do it a training program for social workers and clinicians at, at the same site at the same time. So they got to talking and Phil's wife at the time, June said that Phil wanted to bring somebody in to help the team deal with the stress of success. And so they were looking at things and said, well, who's this guy? And they said, well, yeah, he works at prison project, but he room with Dr. Gay in college and whatever. He said, okay, that's who we want. We want him to come in because he, he can talk to the guys and he's been around elite performance before, so it'll be fine. And that's how I came about. But it wasn't because they were trying to get over the hump. They were trying to get to the next level. And so, but there's mainly Phil's approach of dealing with the whole person. He didn't see them as basketball players. He saw them as part of his family, part of his flock. He grew up, his parents were Pentecostal ministers. It was more like, this is his congregation. And so he's looking after his players, and that's why it worked with us, because he's looking at the whole person. He's not just looking at, you know, it'd be like, uh, I have another friend, his name is Julius Thomas. He was a tight end for nine years. He played for the Dolphins the last time in Jacksonville. And he and I were talking, and he was sharing about, sometimes he'd be trying to talk to the coach, and they say, shut up and just play football. How are you going to play for somebody like that? So they're basically saying, I want your body, but your mind, your heart, and your spirit, I ain't interested in. So now when you relate to them in that level, you're relating to a thing, not a person. And so I'm going to dovetail into something. I know you're going there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go here before you. So when I got into recovery, I realized that the, the ism, the alcoholism or the drugism, whatever you want to call it, you know, but we're talking about a substance abuse, for my experience, is it's a threefold disease at the time, physical, mental, emotion, and spiritual. And I added the emotional component because that's the heart and the relationship, the social part of it, even though that kind of gets rolled into the mental part, it's really a separate part. So these four aspects of being have to be exercised and developed. 
And so if I relate to you as a person with a mind, body, heart, and soul, then that's the whole being approach. And I'm not relating with a thing. I'm relating to somebody that I, mutual benefit, mutual respect, and the idea of, okay, a divine spark. So go there and I, I don't know if I have it here, but usually I have a medallion here and, and here it is. One of my medallions, my first year medallion, but I just celebrated 36 years in July. Amazing. Um, Congrats. Thanks. So you heard a triple triangle, right? right? Triple post offense for the Chicago Jackson's teams. Well, my triangle offense is recovery, unity, and service. I just want to start off with that because that's how everything got started with me getting clean. Absolutely. It's amazing. I think about what recovery, three men talking all in, in sobriety. And the first time I did a little Instagram live with Darren, and he talked about how sobriety is like this cheat code for life. And I actually had never heard it said like that. And I'm like, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And to be able to bring the principles of recovery into the teachings of mindfulness and working mm-hmm. with, for you, the greatest athlete in the world and some of the greatest athletes in the world. But so much of this, at least for me, the foundation is recovery. And it still blows my mind that my messy past led me to all this. It's the coolest thing ever. Right. And so I'm constantly guided by principles. I'm not just out here floating through existence and life anymore. I have yeah. you know, a structure to how I want to live in that and that program keeps me accountable. It keeps me from being self-centered. It keeps me from just being about all I can gain, but it's more about what I can give and how I can, you know, leave this place better than I came into it. So that's what, that's why I think it's just something that just elevates me to another level because it keeps me in uncomfortable situations instead of just staying in my comfort zone. Yeah. So you just talking about the 12th step, brother, as a result of spiritual awakening, uh, practicing principles in all our affairs. And so the thing you mentioned, the word principles, what's so exciting about principles, especially if your values are principles, is that principles are universal and they're unique in in the sense of they're timeless and self-evident. And so the whole process of mindfulness and self-introspection or in terms of seeking to understand things, everything has to do with what's true north. And when we're grounded in principles, they don't change. They're universal and they're self-evident. And part of the self-evident part is that it allows us in the space between stimulus and response to make choices in alignment with the feedback that we get, which is the self-evident. When you know that you are living with recovery and the unity and the service, now, because of those principles, they're going to work, whether it's 1984 or 2002. 21. Amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, this is comeback stories, but just a little bit about what your life was like or what it was like for you growing up. We always love to start with that one. Yes. So growing up for me, I'll try to keep it simple. I'm an OG now. (laughs) (laughs) When I grew up, I grew up one to 13 Mm -hmm. and uh, eight sisters and four brothers. And I was number 10. And so the way the family went, it was my older brother, then my sister, then, then another brother. Then I had six, six, six girls in a row, then me, then twins underneath me, and then a younger brother. And so my thing was to be seen, not heard. And so it was like, and I can only imagine having all those kids and thinking, okay, here's another one coming along and I got to take care of him and, and and that sort of thing. So I learned how to cope by living in my own little fantasy world. And I was super sensitive. I could feel things like I go out in the street, I see a wino on the street and I would feel devastated. Somebody moved from a block. I felt devastated. I just had these feelings because I had this sensitivity and I didn't know what to do with it. And when I talked to people about it, they just told me to shut up and man up. So that was kind of it. And so then I matriculated and then I started playing basketball and sports and I was injury prone because I didn't realize and I had GI problem because I was under this uh, distress and just really and then being an adult child so even though I was young my mother entrusted me with a lot of things so I was very mature so I knew about things if the family didn't have 
uh, money so that we could buy a lunch to go to school. My mother would talk to me about it. I'd be the one to go to the store to get things. So I just had this combination of knowing things, but not knowing what to do with all of that. And how I dealt with that is I, I hid, I had my own little fantasy world. And at the same time, I was told my aunt and uncle used to give me beer before I was walking. Then fast forwarding to college, because I was injury prone, high school and college. And so when I was taking the pain meds, I realized that I was able to talk and I I could do things that I wouldn't do. So I got addicted to pain meds and then illegal drugs, substances, alcohol. But I was a functioning substance abuser. Got through college. I had a job. And at some point, I was going down. And at some point, I just uh, hit my spiritual rock bottom where I couldn't keep doing what I was doing and I could not do it. And I found myself getting high off heroin a couple of times a day just to not be dope sick. And, and I was drinking. And so finally, I got to a point where I couldn't stop and I couldn't keep going. So I hit my bottom. And then my friend came over April Fool's Day, 1984, took me to a meeting. And I went to a meeting. My first a meeting, I had to leave the break. And I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm introvert. I'm on. I don't. I'm around all these folks. But there was something there that kept me coming back. And even though I continued to use it, it was I found my way into detox and I got into de- 21 day detox. I knew that if I went in detox and got methadone, that would be a problem because I was actually on methadone for about a year or maybe it was six months to a year. And the methadone made my habit worse. And then I had all of these body aches and stuff like that. So I knew when I went into the detox, the, the dude that came out of detox had to be different than the dude that went in. And my house was in walking distance from Dorchester detox unit. And, and I walked home and it was the first time I saw my house. So it was the first time I was living on life terms without substances. Something you said earlier that struck me was, and I can relate so much, when I would take the pills, I could talk. Yeah. And that was 100% me, or so I thought. So I would take the pills, and it gets to the point where it's not about getting messed up anymore. It's about feeling normal. And I would take the pills, and I could flow and I was fluid in my words, or I thought I was, but then you know, my mom would remind me that I was slurring my words. So yeah. it's just, it's so interesting. When you look back, like at childhood or in your younger years, like what was an early memory of pain for you? Like a really painful memory that happened to me, I talk about a lot, I think it was profound, was my one of my older sisters was getting married. And my father worked at the railroad during the day and he was a barber at night. So he had to have two jobs. And so for the wedding, I asked him for a certain kind of haircut. We call it Corvatus. And he reacted to me and said, you don't tell me, I tell you. And he gave me a baldy and I had to go to the wedding with a baldy, totally humiliated and really not feeling like I could speak because if I spoke up, I got beat up. Mm. So that changed my whole demeanor. And so then I went more inside and, and really not being willing to ask for what I needed and become self-reliant. That became my strong suit, just not depending on anybody. When I got old enough, I started paying the barber to cut my hair. I didn't let my father cut my hair. We love hearing these stories because it's trauma is trauma, whether it's watching a neighbor move away. It's like the impact That's that right. it has on right. us or having your father making you have a bald cut, what that does to us and how it shapes every decision moving forward in our lives without self-awareness, without doing the work. And I think when we enter into recovery, we get streamlined into this work, whether we never see a therapist or we get therapy plus the 12 steps, and it allows us to really identify the source or the root of the pain, mm-hmm. dig it out and start to heal ourselves. And it's powerful. I just love hearing different stories of what pain looked like or felt like mm-hmm. for individuals because it's all different, but it's actually what connects us all and it's part of the shared human experience. Yes. And it's interesting because looking back on it now, I can look back at it with kinder eyes and realize that my father was doing to me what he was taught. And on some level, growing up in Boston, being Black, African-American, it wasn't safe to speak of. My father grew up in Alabama, so definitely wasn't safe to grow up where he came from. So in a weird way, he was trying to protect me. 
Yep. I, I, one of the greatest things I heard when I was uh, starting my recovery journey is that people are doing the best they can with what they have. That's and right. what they have may not be the sharpest skills or they may not be their best self at their particular time, but they're not inherently trying to do wrong or trying to force pain upon you. They're just trying to do the best that they can. Like you said, your father was trying to protect you. And we naturally want to take that personally or assume that they were out to get us. But as we grow on and as we you know, get more tools in our toolkit, we see that they weren't trying to hurt us. And that's how we can start to develop peace in our lives. So I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, that's why seeking to understand the prayer of St. Francis is really important. Seeking to understand rather than be understood and that sort of thing. So it's like an inverse thing is, is the best way to help yourself to help somebody else. And of course, uh, the tradition is predicated on helping another sick and suffering. And I, I expand that to all beings, not just the people that have the substance abuse, but all beings, if I can be a service. And once again, that service with my recovery and, and that mindset of unity, then I can serve. But unity doesn't mean just coming to a compromise with someone where I'm going to violate my principles, which happen to be my values happen to be principles. I can't violate those. Who would you say was your first real teacher? Um, that's interesting. Maybe my grandmother. And I think about it in those days. Back then, I didn't really understand it. But whenever I had a birthday, she would give me a birthday card. And she wouldn't put George on there. She would put Master George. M-A-S-T-E-R. Because they were sharecroppers. And so she was imparting to me that you are a master, you're not a slave, that you have value. And I didn't get that while she was saying it, but when I talked to my aunt and uncles and my aunt was explaining what it was like being a sharecropper and my uncle being able to play with the sharecropper's son. And then once they got to be adolescents, all of a sudden he had to talk to him like master and they weren't equal anymore. And even though they were just young, and when he gets into his reference group, it's like, yeah, you don't play with them or they are below you. And so there was this idea of she wanted to impart that to me. And we would talk and she would say things. And I lived with her at four time. And so I'd say she had an impact, most definitely her and my mother and the women in my family, for sure. I had that kind of, I would call it tough love but more compassion because my father was doing a tough thing. So we needed a balance somewhere and between my father and then the external uh, environment. Yeah, so I think it started off with her, but then growing up as a young boy, especially in the African-American community, it was the entertainers and the athletes. When I grew up in Boston, you know, I seen the Celtics, Bill Russell win 11 championship in 13 years. You know, I remember Muhammad Ali, and I followed a lot of uh, athletes. And even though I was, lived in Boston, I like watching Jim Brown play, White Tito, the Green Bay Packers was one of my teams. And then basketball, Jerry West and Elgin Baylor were like first, one of the first playoff games I saw. Elgin Baylor scored 61 points against the Celtics. So I so was the sports. Uh, somehow that was the escape route, how to get out. So whether it was basketball, baseball, football, wasn't really seeing myself as a hockey player and soccer wasn't even an option but track and field was an option but you know you didn't really make any money in that and the track and field guys that made out were like Jim Hayes that ended up playing for the Dallas Cowboys as a punt receiver and a D-back and, and that's one of the things they did was they'd get basketball players and they made like Casey Jones and some of these guys they make amazing defensive players or, or and some of those guys like John Havlicek as a Triple sports. He got it was cut from the Cleveland Browns as a quarterback, but he played baseball, basketball, football. Same with uh, Dave uh, Winfield. When he's at Minnesota, he played all three sports. A lot of these cats, but back in those days, not only did they played three sports, but they played both ends. They played defense and offense. And so, yeah, so I'd say that. And I heard about Frederick Douglass, and I think about National Black History month, I, I think about Frederick Douglass and how a slave learned how to be an amazing orator. People around him taught him how to read. And I think of Malcolm X because he was actually 
was in prison in this area. He used to live here in Boston. And I think that's when he became a Muslim. But when he was in Norfolk County House Correction, one of the prisons that I used to go and work in, I actually saw his jacket. They showed me his jacket when he was in there. And he learned how to read by reading the dictionary. So why do I mention those two folks? Talk about a comeback story. Hmm. Talk about transformation. I could talk about Nelson Mandela being in jail for 30 years. So I think it really depends on your mindset and whether you're here to, to heal or you're here to hurt. That sort of thing depends on whether you're feeding the, the fair wolf or the love wolf, as I like to talk about in my book. So I think about those cats and there's many others. Maya Angelou, I use a lot of her sayings, but Harriet Tubman, I had a client that, that has a house and in this house, it's an old farm it was built in the 1600s. It was part of the Underground Railroad. They used to have, they had tunnels that went to the back 40. So the history is there and people, people can, can you imagine what it's like to have freedom, Underground Railroad, and going into danger and bringing people out? Talk about service. Talk about capacity for, for compassion and the toughness. I mean, there's a lot, and we, we can go on and on about it, but for the most part, it's this recovery stories all around us. And the, and the message I have is that we all have a masterpiece. So some, depending on your tradition, I grew up Southern Baptist, so it would be Christ consciousness. Someone else could be Buddha nature, it could be Kuan Yin energy, it could be Muhammad, whatever it is, divine spark, that we all have that. And it's a matter of, it's encrusted in a shell. And so our job is to break out and share that divinity with all of us. And for me, it was through recovery that got me connected because my opinion is what um, the sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey said, the spirit is the life, mind is the builder, and the physical is the result. So how, recovery is a spiritual program. It's a spiritual process. But life begins like the spirit is the life. Without spirit, there's no life. Without spirit, there's no George doing what I'm doing. I'll still be, because on the level of consciousness I was at, using drugs and alcohol and living in fantasy was the only options available. So when I improve conscious contact with a higher power, I'm getting to different levels of, of consciousness or energy, positive energy levels where those options are not even available. Yeah, what I take from that is what, which I find valuable is that I feel like you allowed the world to be your teacher. You allowed mm -hmm. uh, so many people, anyone that you came across, any sport, any walk of life, their experience, you were open-minded to it and allowed them to teach you and guide you. Whereas, you know, I reflect back on me in my time of addiction, in my dark times, I wasn't trying to hear from everyone. I thought I knew everything. I thought I could direct my own path and that's what men did. But, you know, great men uh, like yourself, are open to other experiences, open to learning and always knowing that they need to keep learning and growing in order for uh, their life to be what they want it to be. But transitioning with comeback stories, we, we know that in order to have a comeback story, we had to face adversity. And for the next part, I'd like you to take us and give us a visual look at what your greatest moment of adversity was like in your life, what you were feeling, what you're experiencing, and what your world was like at that time. Yeah, so there's different times. I think for me, it was just the stress at home and I had GI problems and my father had tuberculosis. And so we were like on food stamps and just that struggle. That was part of it. But then just being an athlete and being injury prone and going through that. And, and I think it was always a struggle. I, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I, and I had problems, but I didn't, I had a lot of stress and being really sensitive uh, and feeling people's feelings. I didn't know what to do with it. Now I, I know how to, to get through it. But each time is a struggle. It's like when I, when I was in college, I got injured and my career was over. That was a struggle. I didn't know who the hell I was. If I wasn't playing basketball because I was very quiet, I let my basketball talk for me. So now I'm in college, my sophomore year, going out for the team. A couple of weeks before I get undercut, and chip bones in my ankle. I'm on a walking cast and that threw off my back and I'm sleeping on a bedboard. It was a real challenge to be in school and not be an athlete. I didn't know who I was, so I struggled with that. So that was the biggest 
challenge I had. And then when I was a functional addict and then really getting to a point where, you know, getting high a couple of times a day just to be normal. That's, that's a huge, the addiction thing. And then the stinking thinking that goes with it and, and the feeling when you wake up the, the next day after blowing money and doing stupid shit and being in different places, you feel like you want to die. It's like what goes up must come down. So you can't sustain it. And then getting to the realization that no matter how much drugs you had, it was too much and not enough at the same time. So I had those. And then you had the, the physical thing being diagnosed with type two diabetes. But the first thing was when I got clean and I talked to a doctor and even though he was an African-American doctor, he's talking about how did you get addicted to drugs? What, what was your family physician? I looked at him and said, dude, man, I don't know where you grew up, but we had city hospital. I didn't have no doctor. You know, <laughs> like, right. you know, I don't know. You might look like me, but you grew up different than I did, brother. But what he was explaining to me that my nervous system had never dealt with the world on the world's terms. And it was being overwhelmed. It was being overwhelmed. So I had to adjust. So when I got into the learning how man is stressed about the mind-body process, now I could start to work with how to deal with stress and know the difference between distress and eustress, which is a positive stress, like I'm here and I want to get there, and how to deal with that. So pain is motivated. I had chronic pain. When I got clean, the first thing I noticed, I had pain, chronic pain that I had to deal with, and I couldn't take drugs. So that's how I got into meditation and mindfulness and yoga and tai chi and all of that stuff because i had to find an alternative method and i had to overcome this mind and body division that i had and realized that the mind and body can work together and once i get, talked about the physical mental and emotional so recovery gave me a, a roadmap to connecting with spirit or connecting to a power source and at the same time understanding that i had to deal with myself physically mentally and spiritually and then i added emotionally because once I got clean and everything, then it was relationship. I keep getting into these, what I call never push, pull, never ending relationships. They get close, they push you away and pull, push, pull. And I had to look at that and say, okay, so instead of this being a curse, it's an opportunity for me to learn how to be with myself and how to be with another person and this mutual benefit, mutual respect, but not take each other hostage. Yeah, I would say um, one of the things that jumped out to me was you wanted just wanted to feel normal. I wanted to feel I wanted to feel normal as well. But I want to ask you, how did you shift from wanting to be normal to being a part of something that the world wasn't necessarily doing or a part of? Like you were one of the leaders on that mindfulness front. How talk to the people about how they went from how you went from being normal, wanting to be normal, to leading this new charge. And it's not normal. It's it's abnormal to people. Yes. So for me, it was the chronic pain and learning how to deal with life on life's terms and understanding that there was, there was a way, a way of life. So recovery opened me up to all the other things. But then what I noticed, because being really sensitive, there's a still small voice we have inside that's easily drowned out. I started meditating and listening to that voice. And I had this need to be intellectually stimulated. And so over this last 36 years, I've averaged over a book a week. And just studying stuff, I just knew. And then I knew maybe part of it came from the recovery. Like the only way I can keep this is to give it away. And the best way to learn something is to teach. So I let that. So now I see it as pursuing excellence and wisdom. And then it took me a couple of decades to figure out that I had to add with grace and ease because I still had that warrior mentality pushing through lone warrior, I got to get this done instead of realizing slow motion gets you there quicker. And and it's like yang and intention. I have to intend strong, but then the process is more soft. It's more like water. And it's more like having the how. I talk about the how of the program. Honest, open, and willing. Mm. And sometimes willing to be willing. And so all that stuff came together and it just was clear to me, this is why I was here. This I need to be me. And this feels good for me to Say, I did this. So I got very interested in motivation, how people get motivated to overcome addictions and nonverbal communication. I want to be able to hear what people are really communicating because only 7% of the communication is the words. The other 93% is, is tonality and, and body language. And so when I was working in a, in a detox at the time, 
And I'd have clients that 21 days are in the same detox I was in. On day 20, they get thrown out of the detox. But they never finish anything in their lives. So down the image is saying, okay, Houston, we have a problem. This ain't who I am, or I'm not trying to do that because it's uncomfortable. And so I got really interested in how to get people to really release their divine spark or really to move to the next level, how to see things as the glass half full instead of half empty and to see things not as roadblocks, but stepping stones. So I started reading all of the wisdom literature and and just trying to learn as much as I could about psychology. And then I ended up going back to graduate school after 13 years and getting my counseling psychology. But I knew I wanted to be able to use it as personal development. So for me, it was all about learning, growing, and developing. So that stimuli for me to seek to understand, to be a seeker, was something that was so strong. It was like a thirst that I have had to do it. And then when I started opening up to what was possible to me, and this is interesting because these are the two things that we need to understand as know yourself is, and there's a book called um, Becoming a Leader. It says you got to be yourself to be a leader. And he talks about the four steps of uh, self-knowledge. And one of them is uh, you are your own best teacher, which I know that it was about me learning and going from being a financial analyst to, to instead of analyzing numbers, analyzing people and organizations, you're your own best teacher. And the second step of that is be responsible, no excuses. And then the third step was you can learn anything you want to learn. So that's what I understand. I can talk about quantum physics. I can talk about uh, spirituality. I can talk about recovery. I can learn anything I want to learn. So I'm a seeker. Uh, I have a growth mindset. I'm looking at, okay, what's the lesson instead of what do I need to avoid? What do I need to learn here? How do I step? How do I go to the next level based on what happened? And then the last thing is, the fourth step is this idea of true understanding comes from reflecting on experience. So in recovery, having a quiet time, reading the day at the time, praying. One of the things I did for the first four or five years was I would read page 449 on acceptance every day. So I, I had this the same intensity I went after getting high I, I used for my recovery. And I'm just an intense, I, I have this strong desire or will to, people say, what, George is intense. That's your opinion. I'm just being me. <laughs> right. You know, and I can be intense now with compassion and knowing when slow, knowing slow motion gets you there quicker. So I'm still as intense, but I'm not so hyped up more like water i'm flowing with it and, right. and that comes with understanding and just all i could say is maybe i'll put it this way i have more enthusiasm joy for life now than i ever had i gotta tell you i'm just feeling this overwhelming sense of gratitude for so many reasons one some of the words there's some things you've said Maybe I'll unpack a little bit. A while back, you talked about being the athlete in college, injury prone. Like that just hit me. Baseball ended for me senior year in college, Mm -hmm. traumatic surgery on my knee. And that losing my purpose, my identity, the only thing I ever knew, almost Mm -hmm. killed me. Yes. Almost killed me because I didn't know who I was and I had my whole identity wrapped in that. And so when I, yes, I had this major surgery. Yeah, I got prescribed a lot of painkillers and, did the doctor treat me right? Probably not. But like when I really had to get real and get honest, I didn't want to feel the emotional pain of the loss. I didn't know who I was. So I numbed it out for many years. So for you to say that, having that similar story, and I know there's athletes, young athletes, college athletes, pro athletes, even the people that I work with, and I tell them, it's going to end for you one day. So you better know who you are, whether it's on a dime with a major injury or they hang your jersey in in an awesome retirement ceremony, you better know who you are beyond the sport. So that was just something that really stuck with me. And then the HOW acronym, which is so cool because I coach normies, as us in recovery like to say, people that maybe use or they drink regularly or they just drink and they don't have, they didn't have to surrender like we did. And I use that same acronym for in my coaching. If you go all in in this coaching program and get honest with yourself first, honest with your coach, be open-minded and be willing, you'll get everything you want out of this. Just go all in on those three. So 
it's just cool that I can use a nugget from recovery for everybody. Yeah, I'm just so grateful. You were so accessible when I first reached out to you years back when I was doing some work with the Suns and trying to get you involved. And then they just had some coaching changes and that's what happens. And then things get stalled out. But you've always been so approachable and accessible in your book, The Mindful Athlete. Whether you're an athlete or not, I would say, go read this. I think we're all athletes in in some term anyways. I just want to tell you how grateful I am for you. But I also want to ask you, what are you grateful for today? What am I grateful for today? I can breathe in and breathe out. I have the non-toothache right now. So what does that mean? That means you don't appreciate the non-toothache until you get a toothache. So it's really more about me being committed to joy now or never. And it's a joy is in the journey. It's like day to day. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share my experience, strength, and hope. I'm really grateful for the fact that people are more open and open to what I'm talking about, what I'm saying. I've been doing this for 36 years, and most of that time has been on the down low. It's only been in the last 10 years or so that people want to hear what I've been doing so surreptitiously, not because I was afraid, but part of it was people weren't ready for it. They seem to be more ready now. The world seems to be more ready. So I'm grateful that I I can still share my experience, strength, and hope. I can still uh, continue to grow and evolve in spite of the fact that my body isn't what it used to be. I can tell you exactly when I used to be able to just jump and do 10 pull-ups. And then one time I get on in, I did three and I almost died. <laughs> you know, shit changes quick, brother. That's right. what <laughs> so the idea of noticing, okay, I can get it so I can do my Tai Chi and do all the other stuff and, and get stronger and that's fine. But at some point, top father time's gonna gonna catch up with me. But what father time cannot won't catch up with is my mind, is my ability. Cause that's the only thing I can take with me. All these material things can't go, but what I've developed spiritually, what I've cultivated in terms of a karmic energy, that's gonna take me where I need to go. So beyond the body, the spirit is the life. So if my spirit is strong, it doesn't matter. Anything else is going to be strong. It's going to be as it should be. And I'm going to be able to embrace getting old, getting sick, and dying. It's going to be, but I'm not going to do it. Oh, my God, I'm losing anything. It's okay. I'm ready to go because I've done all I could do. It's like, Darren, when you play, you want to be able to lead the field saying, I left everything out there today. I I got better today. That's a winner not about just winning champions it's about you knowing that you got better today the same with you donnie is okay so maybe you're not pitching that way but you're giving people a picture about how to be so you're still like jesus said to one of the brothers he said you're a fisher but i'm going to make you a fisher man you're a fisherman so now for you is you are a pitcher but now you can pitch ideas you can pitch ways of being to others. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's who you're being because as I said, one of one of my role models was Bill Russell. And there was a him and John Havlicek were out and about around here in Boston somewhere and guy came up to him, Bill Russell six ten, uh, you're a basketball player and Bill Russell said no. And so when the guy left, uh Havlicek said, Rush, why don't you tell him you're not a basketball player. And here's what Russell said. Because that's what I do. That's not who I am. Mm-hmm. So if you had that and if I had that, now when we're not playing basketball, baseball, we can say that's what we did. That's not who we are. But this is where the pain comes. We identify with what we do and what we think, what we feel. And it's just events. It's not who we are because that's going to change. But if we keep thinking that's who we are, and we lose our sport or ability to perform. Now we have this situation where we don't know who we are. We could end up being anybody. And if we don't know where we're going, we could end up going anywhere. So that's real. That's dope right there. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you talked about how father time can't touch our minds. We can constantly nourish our spirits, our mental, our internal world. And uh, regardless of what's happening on the outside, our internal world can be what we want it to be. 
And uh, I know that I wish I knew some of these things a little while back, but I can't change that. But I want to uh, ask you just a, a fun question. If you had one tweet, one 140 character text that you could say with the knowledge and everything that you've learned now, if you could say to your past self that George, that was oversensitive or overwhelmed, what would you say to him? Same thing. I say you have a masterpiece. You can be anything you want to be and go big. But also the main thing I would say is no struggle, no swag. That's beautiful. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you want swag, brother, then the struggle, you embrace it and you make it your stepping stone and you relate to it in a way where it empowers you to say, oh, this is a challenge. I'm up for this. It's going to be great. Right. And so to embrace whatever comes, but to generate the hope. I always look at, yeah, yes, I can. God doesn't make junk. If I connect to the power source, it's what I say to people, like the, the little socket. So I have a nephew. He's actually, he's a rabbi. But when he got by Mitzvah, and he's very orthodox, he said to me, what's your concept of God? Now, that's a setup. Right? <laughs> that's, why do we think we have our own consciousness? We would decide what, who, who our high power is. And I said, the name is Avi. I said, you do? I, I said, See that plug over there? I just plug into the power source. And he got it. That's what I do. Just plug in that spirit is the life. So you, if you have a spiritual foundation, everything else is going to be fine. I mentioned your book a couple of times. And I, a few weeks ago when we connected and I got the book back out and I'm, I have it right in front of me and I'm looking at how basically I'm an underliner and a, and a highlighter and the whole book is pretty much underlined, but I did pull a few nuggets and I'm hoping maybe you could just touch on them. This is one that's just, I, I think it really struck a chord with me the first time. And then when I found it and pulled it, I'm like, man, this is just fire. But you said, we all have emotional blueprints that have been laid down since childhood. And it's here that we find the patterns in limited thinking that create our inner obstacles that make it difficult for us to believe in ourselves or to readily see ourselves clearly. These include deep insecurities, subtle self-critical messages, and negative talk under the surface, ready to flare up, trip us up, and validate our unworthiness at the slightest mishap. So needless to say, these belief systems not only create and reinforce our own reality, they also determine a large measure of how we play the game of life, both on and off the court, as well as how easily we can go into flow and experience the zone or not. And man, you can elaborate on that, but that right there to me is just like everything. I have the chills just reading that. Yeah. So in the Bible, it talks about be still and know. So it's really more about becoming an observer of our experience and seeing where we get stuck, where we get caught. So I use the analogy of the two wolves. Now, just to just hit you up on my book, I read my book 47 times and I wrote it. And I'm about to do another online course, so I'll read it again in the next couple of weeks. I'll read it for the 48th time. Because it, these are teachings, and the more I go over it, and I read the book, I wrote the book, but I wasn't there when I wrote it. It was like it just flowed. So now you have an experience, and you tape it, then you go back and you look at things, and you say, oh, look at that. Who said that? That was pretty good. So it's kind of like that. So you understand that there's two wolves. There's the fair wolf and there's the love wolf. And what we tend to do is we tend to repress one or try to get rid of one instead of realizing that to be an integrated self, how to integrate both of them. But you need the fair wolf. You need the reptilian brain. You need to fight, flight, or freeze. So when you walk across the street and a car comes, you move out of the way instinctively. You're not reflecting on, well, should I move or not? If you snooze, you lose. You think about it like you play. If you think you miss, you're too late. You got to be able to see and the behaving has to be all of a piece without a his breath in between. And so you don't get rid of the fair wolf or you think of the fair wolf as our addiction. It's always going to be there. But if you don't feed it, it stays on the down low, stays in the basement. We can't hurt anybody. But then you feed the love wolf or you feed the things that, you know, the, the principles of how do you relate to experience in a way where you not only get better, but you have more peace, more ease, more self-satisfaction because you're fully expressing yourself. So it's, it's that kind of thing, understanding that we have both capacities. Like Titna Hine talks about 
store consciousness. So they're down on the download, like the blueprints. And when they express themselves, what they're saying to us is you got a choice. If you can create space between stimulus and response, you could see how you got develop that habit and change it. Don't make yourself wrong and don't say you have to get rid of it and don't deny it because denial and blame are two ways of not taking responsibility. So we own it. No excuses. And what are you going to do with it? So something happens, you get to interpret what it means. So you can interpret it as the worst thing that ever happened or or, or curse, or you can interpret it as an opportunity. And so we get to do that because 90% of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the nervous system interprets our experience, not 10%, 90%. So you can interpret something in a way that empowers you, where you connect the higher power. That's why you have a higher power. Can I turn this over? Will this being done, that kingdom is being restored? What does that mean? It doesn't mean I'm quitting or anything. It just means that my job is just doing what I need to do, make the next play, and the results are in my hand. But I can intend for the results to be a certain way and then create that blueprint where I just say, hey, I want to do this and then get out of the way and let your body express itself. Yeah, come when we tell our comeback stories, we have to take responsibility for what our world looks like now, uh, what's going on, on the inside in order for us to create that life, what we want to do going forward. And uh, you dropped a lot of gems on us today. And before we get out of here, we, we know that we can't tell our story. We can't live the life that we live without other people. So I want to ask you if you could give a comeback story, shout out to one person, who would that be and why? Would you say shout out story? What do you mean? If you could for say, like when you turned your life around from being overwhelmed and not having identity to uh, being this guy who's leading a charge for mindfulness, could you credit one person for helping you along that journey, one person that supported you along the whole way, if you could, or if there's multiple. Yeah, I have a, I have a multiplicity. I had a lot of problems. I deal. There's a lot of folks. So when you read, when you look at my, if you look at, actually, do I have one here? Let me see if I have. Yeah. So in my book, The Mindful Athlete, I have, and it's funny because I put so many people in there. Sometimes I forget, but they read it and say, "Yeah." People say to me, "How did you get in there?" Because I just, there's so many people that, let's see if I can find it, but it's in the, in the a section of the book. So it's my family, my, my mother, my grandmother, obviously God, higher power, uh, connecting to the power source. I'm trying to think if I can find it, but there's a lot of people, everybody that I interact with. But I have to go to the avatars, really. That's Jesus Christ, Buddha, Muhammad. Could be Sigmund Freud. Everybody has a different, there's a bunch of teachers, like teachers that I, all of the, the best teachers or the, the most impactful mindfulness and meditation teachers. When I started doing this th- almost 40 years ago, it was a small group. So I, I've interacted with all those folks, but it's really more about the wisdom uh, teachings. It could be Martin Buber or Victor Frankl. Like I said, Maya Angelou. There's I would say it has more to do with anybody. It could be even Leonardo da Vinci. Anybody who says that you, why it could be this guy, what's his name? Maxwell Maltz, who wrote the book, Psycho-Cybernetics, talks about the automatic success mechanism. All of these folks, there's a guy that was a plastic surgeon and at 64, he wrote this book, totally changed his whole career, and he goes out and he starts teaching, talking to people, a lot of athletes, Green Bay Packers back in the day, and others have used his teaching. So there's so many people, but I think it's like Joseph Campbell said, it's a hero with a thousand faces, or heroin with a thousand faces. I think there's these archetypes. And I was thinking about another one when I was coming up, he was really impactful for me is M. Scott Peck. Road to uh, road less travel. There's there's many of them, but Jean Houston. I have a lot of females in my in my family in my life that have been Madame Curie. You can just go. There's just so many. Mother Teresa, the Buddha's mother and his wife. They became uh, bikinis. It's it's more about connecting to the archetype or the Buddha consciousness or the Christ consciousness. It's that masterpiece, that divine spark 
that energy. So it's manifested in all these people, but at different times, it's a different person. You understand what I'm saying? But it could be Bill W. He created this whole thing. I met Dr. David Hawkins, and he, and first thing he said to me, he passed away in 2012, but he wrote a book, uh, Power Versus Force, and a whole bunch of other books. But he would go around and say hi to people. So we went to Arizona and saw him, and he saw me, came over to me, and he said, you're um friend of Bill W., W, aren't you? And I said, yes. We connected just like that. 90-day meditation, silent retreat, and a bunch of us are going into the gym at the time and doing Tai Chi during uh, free time, not talking, but just congregating. And then afterwards, when we open up, they're all in recovery. Yeah. So it's it's like any person, any situation, any event is an opportunity to learn profound, profound teachings. But I think all the people that, like yourself, me, who are willing to share their experience, strength, and hope, and I like to say it was just one person, but I think it's more complicated than that. But there's a person that has a message, but I think it has more to do with when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So you can be in front of a teacher or master, but if you ain't ready, if your ass is not on fire, you're not having that how, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But I, I hear what you're saying. So it, it's really anybody who talks about you being whole, perfect, and complete as you are, it's just that you don't know it and that you haven't expressed it yet. Yeah, well, I appreciate those that have inspired you because I feel like you've definitely inspired us and inspired everyone that's listening right now. So we just want to thank you you know, for your time, for your wisdom, uh, for your experience and sharing that here today. I know people are going to leave here better than when they press play. So I just want to say thank you uh, for today. Yeah. So I just want to say, I appreciate that. And I'll, I'll just share with you two things that I, I like to keep repeating and reminding myself that if I want to learn something, I teach it. And if I want to keep something, I got to give it away. Mm-hmm. Mic drop. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's it. That's it. All right. Appreciate you. Yes, All right. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, okay. but every king's gonna get crowned.